They told me I could only be a custodian. They told me I could only be a police officer. They told me I could only be a lawyer. Doctor. Performer. Financier. Sex worker. Engineer. Warrior. Programmer. Pilot. Doctor. Performer. Financier. Sex worker. Doctor. Engineer. They told me I could only be a hell diver. We're done being told who we can be. Jeremy, I want to start this podcast off getting right to the fun stuff. You ready for the fun stuff? I'm ready. Let's bring it. Let's talk about Camp 121. Oh, geez, that's dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, in all seriousness, I think this is one of my favorite parts of Iron Gold. And we'll talk about that and unpack that. And I know a lot of people are like, you're crazy. Yeah, for like, like glutton for punishment style. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I'll say this right up top. This part of this series makes me cry on command. What Lyria goes through in these uh, beginning chapters and how her whole family gets taken from her is so heartbreaking in the fashion that it happens. It's so heartbreaking. But there's also this real humble, wholesome feeling to these these chapters that I love so much that, I mean, there's, there's little things, like little tiny things. The one that I always love that makes me smile every time I come to Lyria's point of view is the nephews. I love her little nephews running around. And the, the part that I love so much is that they're like pretending to be the heroes of the Republic. They're pretending to be like, I'm, I'm the goblin and I'm, I'm Callaway Z Char. And they're kind of having arguments over, you know, who, who is, I think, I believe that they're having arguments over like, who is the better kind of hero, so to speak. And it, it feels like me when I was in third grade, I, I lived across the street from a park. I'd go and shoot hoops there and I'd pretend to be a basketball player that I saw on TV the night before. And I just kind of emulate that. That's what it feels yeah. like. It feels like I like the kind of wonder to it. And I like the idea of Lyria, the first kind of interaction she has with a family member, walking into her house and smelling soup. It just feels so much more relatable than so many other parts of Red Rising. I mean, there's a lot of other parts that we're going to talk about <laughs> that are awful about this section of chapters. But that's where I want to start. I want to talk about Camp 121. Iron Gold is, I would say, accessible. And as we continue to unpack this book, we'll continue to come up with like this list of reasons why we like it so much. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of the first trilogy and in many ways, one could never put themselves in the shoes of Dero or Mustang. Mm -hmm. Maybe with like a wild imagination, you, you could get pretty close, but there's never like a, a really personal identification. It isn't until Iron Gold. And I think notably about the prologue, you have the the orange girl, mm -hmm. right, in the schoolhouse. And, and there's a lot of this depiction that goes along with that. And what you just brought up, it's like, I can actually imagine myself with you when we were teenagers yeah. playing outside, just as these children are doing here. And we leave very much this throne room vantage 
yeah. of the first trilogy where everything is high society, you know, rulers and, and important families. And suddenly we're, we're taken to a realm of Camp 121. Now, obviously, I think you, like me, have never been part of a refugee camp. No, yeah. So I'm not saying I identify on that level, but I think yeah. Pierce, I kind of take him at his talent because he is very well-versed in his study of history. I think he's become very reliable on, on looking back and being able to draw these things and use them in his world. And in very much the same way, I believe that this depiction of refugee camp is legitimate and it feels right to me. And because I can put myself and place myself there in the place of those children who are playing in the streets or the mud or whatever despicable conditions they're in, I feel very much a part of this world. So I've never been obviously a part of a refugee camp um, in my <laughs> life. And I never want to be, obviously. Yeah. But I have been into it. I have been in a jungle before. I've been to Thailand. It was amazing, amazing experience. And I kind of get the scenery a little bit, just like from the limited experience I've had there. Mm. And so it is, it does feel grounded in that way because, you know, Leary is living in a jungle where the humidity is just off the rails. There's bugs everywhere. It's uncomfortable. And she's like kind of in a working conditions. And I, when I went to Thailand, I was doing the same thing. I was working and stuff. Um, it's like, it's so uncomfortable to be outside in Thailand yeah. or a place like that in a jungle, essentially. And so I do have, for me personally, I do have a relatability. I think a lot of people have been, you know, you've been to Florida. You've experienced this. <laughs> yeah, if you've been to Florida or Georgia or Louisiana, you're probably good. So there is this tangibility, relatability that you feel like you know where you are, to, to borrow your phrase, kind of feel like you're, you're in the first series. You're always in the throne rooms. Here you are in this kind of, again, a, a very humble setting, a known setting. And that's something that Pierce doesn't do all too often. Pierce, as a writer, he doesn't always explain the setting in great detail. And it's not a knock against him. It's just his style. And you and I actually read before, like for, for me personally, the things I read outside of science fiction most is classic literature. I know you do a lot of the same. Mm -hmm. And John Steinbeck is a, a figure that we are both incredibly drawn to Absolutely. as an author. And he will write an entire page on a beach and what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like, what it smells like, everything. And it feels like you're there. It feels like you just got transported into that place. This is the closest thing I feel like in a Red Rising novel to feel transported to a place because you have the the humble, again, I'm using that word a lot, but you have the humble setting of family and a familiar structure. And then you have like the the setting that is described to you, like the, the earthly setting is described to you in great detail. So I, I really, again, it's, I really like it. I really feel like I'm here with Lyria. I'm, I'm alongside of her somehow. Yeah, Steinbeck is a great pool. And it's because of his ability to depict location. And what he does, whether it's Salinas or Monterey being Cannery Row or King City, right? Whatever this setting that Steinbeck draws on, it really becomes a character in his story and one of the main ones. Mm -hmm. And I think Pierce is really tapping into a bit of this right now because it isn't until really Dark Age that you get a kind of a more zoomed in approach on like the red hand. So yeah. really, you just have this grandiose picture of Camp 121 being just this squalor and this complete abject poverty where the barter system reigns supreme. Mm -hmm. and, and you're just kind of like, 
unfortunately at the whim of either like more powerful clans or republic soldiers trading we'll call it goods and services in order to get things like garlic yeah. or shoes and and it's incredibly unfortunate and then you just have this outside force which is the red hand but almost like at a whim they just come in and, and just wreck things and it's just yeah. It's just a terrible place. The fragility of it makes it seem even more alive though, right? The fragility yeah. of the place. That's what makes that, it so real. Yeah. And that's, I mean, let's pivot to the Red Hand. I mean, that's a huge part of this launching point for Lyria as a part of launching point for the story uh, at large. You know, they're kind of looming around this part of the world in Red Rising and they become a factor, like you said, in the next book in Dark Age. But right now, they take a big swing and they hit it real hard um, mm -hmm. against Lyria, her family, and the, basically everyone in this camp. And it's like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is one of the most horrific thing. This is cry on command. This is like, I got to put the book down. I got to calibrate. I got to go hug my kids. <laughs> like kind of status? <laughs> like, I hope that people get a chance to, I mean, it, I'm not asking you to, but you should go try to reread this and just kind of look at this, these section of chapters with fresh eyes. If you've, it's been a while for you to read the Camp 121 uh, Red Hand Raid, the emotionality in this whole greater scene when the Red Hand is actually, I don't know, what do you want to even call it? Genocide or like a, attempt at genocide or what that's, is? It's a solid word choice. Yeah. At least, yeah. They're just coming in to create hell. That's what they're doing. And it's predicated on this weird hate against their own people. Um, it doesn't really even fully make sense, but that's what that's what racism and hate kind of are. It doesn't really have to make sense. It just, it just is there. It's gross. But just like the way that even with all that chaos and hatred being imbued in the scene by Pierce, what I love about this is how he actually set the scene up. The mechanics of the scene are so incredible because right when Lyria walks in, she talks to her sister Ava and she's like, hey, like smells that soup smells freaking dope. You know, I mean, <laughs> she says it smells great. She's like, oh, I got some garlic in the pot tonight. Like, whoa, okay. Living on Easy Street now. But either way, Ava, who's the mother of Liam, who's the kind of the nephew we get to know the most, is at the infirmary and that's mentioned. So we know that right off the top. That mechanic right there from a storytelling standpoint is so perfect, so specific. Because what that allows Pierce to do is it allows when the red hand comes and the family has to all run out. And what happens if you all remember that Lyria's father is a person with a disability and he can't walk. And when in this situation, you need to be able to not walk. You need to be able to run. And that is not something that they can afford right now. So Lyria wheels out her father and has the nephews kiss her father for luck. Doesn't, obviously doesn't say what's happening. They're not explaining, but... Just that is also heartbreaking with itself, knowing that they're kissing their grandpa for the last time. And then Lyria has a moment that just brings me to my mental knees, is that she just profusely tells her father that she knows she's going to see him for the last time. I love you. I love you. Like, and I'll see you in the veil. It's just, I don't, I'm not, I'm not even actually saying the right quote. I don't want to. I want people to go read it. But man, it just, it literally, it kills me. But what is interesting about that is that what if Liam was with them? You know, I know again, what if game, but the, this is how Pierce set the whole scene up. He basically made it to where Illyria has to leave her father behind because she has to go get Liam at the infirmary and she has to talk to the doctor there and she has to go through a series of steps that make her kind of essentially her escape or her journey through that moment 
far more intense and more interesting that brings us, the readers, along for that ride. But placing Liam there as just that kind of mechanic to have to go back more into the town is so fascinating because it just opens up so many doors for what can happen in the scene. Yeah, if anyone's ever heard of the moral philosophy quandary of, of the trolley experiment, this is a phenomenal example of something like that. And here Lyria is faced with having to switch the tracks. Yeah. And it's like she has certainly two, maybe three choices where it's like right in front of her, the tangible in your face is the man and father that she grew up with and loves and has this just infinity for or affinity for. And on the other side is Liam. I think that a lot of people would naturally gravitate this to this response of like, it's the here and now, my father's with me, I'm going to do whatever I can to save him, and you put yourself in grave danger. That, or you understand, I'm in pure survival mode, it's everyone for themselves, and I'm going to run. But she chooses the Liam track, she chooses to go to the infirmary to risk her own life which happens over and over again, by yeah. the way, uh, no spoilers, but <laughs> we'll get to those spoilers in like a matter of two minutes, but yes, exactly. And, and she makes this really fascinating and just kind of complex choice in my opinion. Now, just brutal honesty here. Lyria was never my favorite POV when I first started reading this. I saw her very much, um, you know, a, a common IP we referenced Star Wars. Very much like a lot of people in A New Hope see Luke Skywalker as. And that is the newly orphaned child, right? From mm. her, from his uncle and aunt, by the way. But they see him as whiny. Like, it, it isn't yeah. until really, like, late Empire, more like Return of the Jedi, that Luke is suddenly this, like, badass lightsaber-wielding Jedi. Yeah. But at first, he's just this punk kid who just is constantly whining. And Lyria is, is, I think, seen very much the same light, but the intention has to be the same. It's like the author, right, in this case Pierce, wants to take Lyria through this arc, through this coming-of-age story, through this, like, quick maturity that tragedy brings on and show you how that develops. So I, I she is a young adult, and she has honest and sincere and correct grievances that she has to air throughout this book. And yet her approach to doing it may be reflective of her actual maturity and age. But what we see that I've come to see probably in subsequent rereads is this point where she makes this decision, the trolley experiment, as I call it, is that jumping off point to that extreme rapid growth in her character. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, she has to make a very similar decision. You know, we have the entry point to where I think this just the, the levity that's needed because we're not going to just completely relitigate the whole horror of Camp 121. I know it's just it has a lot of there's a lot of gruesome detail uh, involved in this scene. So I want to kind of jump past that. I want to go to the Cavix Altalamanis of it all. The only character that could really like save this whole moment because of his levity, because of his, his joy, because of just who he is, just his nature is just perfect for the moment to kind of give it that rise and fall that it needs. Uh, Pierce 
perfectly selected this character to come in and be the one that kind of ushers the next part of the story forward. Yeah, and it's like, why are we even talking about Kavix? I mean, aside from like his perfectly groomed, beautiful red beard. Oh, I know. Yeah. Is I wish I had that beard so bad. <laughs> <laughs> is that he's used as a tool and not in a derogatory way, but maybe better word device, right? Mm-hmm. And he's the right one for the job. And I, I, this is just kudos to Pierce kind of moment, right? This is the kudos corner for Pierce Brown. Yeah. How do you use something to shift the story right here, right? Yeah, he would take Lyria seriously because you know that that the prior moment we're not addressing, but let's go back just a tiny bit. Is that Kavix recognizes her her bravery, and then also the fact that she saved his life, and he rewards her with that fox pendant. And that fox pendant says, "If you ever need anything, call on House Talmanis, and I'll get it to you." And immediately, she is smart enough to want to cash that in, understanding there is nothing left for me here, and I'm just going to get transferred to some other place. I don't even know where I'm going. But I want to be in control. I want to know where I'm going. And I need my nephew. We need to be together. We need to get out of here. Because this is, if I have to stay anywhere near Mars, it's just going to remind me of the hell that I just suffered through. It's interesting because in the background, it's not the easiest thing, right? I mean, you think with House Telemannus' station stuff, you could just make it happen. And they can. But everything costs a little bit of political capital. So... Who are you going to employ in order to burn some of that political capital to save a low red and her nephew? Like, it's only Kavix. Yeah. This scene really brings about the beginning to what I see as this amazing trait of Lyria. And when we talk about these different POVs, when we talk about Darrow, like we have on the previous episode, it's like, we could talk about like, you know, superhero powers or something, but... Lyria is very much that relatable character. She's as human in this world as we're going to get, you know, outside of actual Earth and all that. But one of the things that's that's incredible is her ability to read this situation. And Kavix is the perfect character to start with and bring this about. And that's why we talked a bit about him. I don't know how prevalent this is. This is something that you know, it can be picked up in like management books. I'm, I'm sure it exists way outside of that and everyone's heard of this, but it's this idea of an emotional quotient. And it's very much like IQ, except for it's EQ. And Lyria has this through the freaking roof. Like her ability to read emotions on other people in an instant and react with an appropriate emotion is dead on. And I want to explore that a little bit, but in context of Kavix at first, like we said, it's the device, right? It, it, he is the character with the word that must be honored. And Lyria just like steps right up to the plate and connects with him immediately demanding from a gold. Like put this in context for a second. Mm-hmm. If I went to the White House and I met President Joe Biden, I would like my hand would be shaking. I would shake his hand. I'd say, it's so much of a pleasure to meet you, Mr. President. And I'd go on my merry way. You would, you would, the way you, okay. So he just put his hand out. You put your hand out right now and you acted it. And you were even kind of shaking when you did that. That was funny. Well, I'm, I'm trying to get in the, in the moment, right? <laughs> That's why I laughed. And it's like, I'd, I'd go away. Yeah. Not for a second would I 
even imagine of like, hey, this is the moment where I air all my grievances, yeah. where I, where I just like you say, owe me or whatever hey, it you is. You know what? Back yeah. in my hometown, what we struggle with, <laughs> like, no, it's like, it's the president of the United States. It's it's one of the most powerful people in the entire world. Like, and and that's what Cavix is to her, mm-hmm. but. But she doesn't see him like that. She just walks up and is like, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to grab you by your big old thick red beard. I'm going to pull you down to my face. I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. She doesn't actually do that, but I see it. Yeah, you can see. I mean, it feels feels like it's there though, right? Yeah. I believe you're right. I believe she does this extremely well. And that's showcased throughout her journey. Um, There's other moments that this happens in. I want to kind of go to those too quickly. There's a moment where you, if you jump kind of all the way to the end of the book, you see Mustang and Lyria having a pretty good size interaction. And I love Mustang's uh, entry into this, the Iron Gold because she's absent for so much of it. But when she's here, she realizes what she's, how she's failed. She realizes that she hasn't done better for Lyria, not just for Lyria, but people like Lyria, like all these, the red hand has been looming around this story in this world. And 121 was not the only camp that they tore apart and wrecked and mass murdered, genocide, whatever, again, whatever you want to use. It's through this dialogue, through this exchange that Lyria doesn't regard Mustang as sovereign. She regards her as like, just, Hey, like you said, you do this. You didn't do it. You let us down. You let me down. My whole family is dead because of promises you made and you did not honor. You would never say that to, to Biden or anyone of that power. <laughs> right. like, can you imagine doing that to someone like of that with that much power? And in this, I think that I look at the sovereign in this world as probably more powerful. For me, the yeah, way I look at it is more powerful than the president of the United States. Because yeah. that's just one leader of one. This is like the whole free world is what sovereign Mustang or sovereign. Why can't I remember her last name all of a sudden? <laughs> wow. Sovereign Augustus. Thank there you. you. Go. Yeah. Wow. Ow, mental Augustus po- to you, ment- sir. Mental pothole. Boom. Okay. <laughs> we, we got on their side of that. But. Mustang, after Lyria kind of equivocates herself with her, Mustang says this in return. You lost your family, she says. You trusted the Republic and we broke that trust. This is Lyria. Then I'm struck dumb. She goes to a knee, her eyes on the ground. And then this is Mustang speaking again. I do not deserve it, nor must you give it. But I ask all the same, will you forgive us? Will you forgive me? for not doing better. Hmm. How do you do that, right? Th- this is that part of EQ I'm talking about because what you see here is an equality. She views herself as the exact same substance of equality. And that's where my example of you know meeting the president wouldn't be like that, right? The station of president is something I, I respect and just have a reverence for. So I don't count myself equal to that station, but Lyria does. Yeah, and, she does. And that it's what's so amazing about her. And what I said, like kind of the definition of EQ, right? It's not just that you can read people because I think there's like a negative connotative element of manipulation. If all you do is read somebody, mm-hmm. but the other side of it is an equal and appropriate emotional reaction. And I'm going to say something and and whoever's out there, like, don't get the wrong idea. Like I'm not litigating 
morality or, or if this is a proper grievance or anything like that. But what I'm saying is responses to these things. And if like you're doing, I don't know, like what you have like paint on like priceless works of art, you yeah. know, people throw it or glitter bombs or whatever people are doing. Yeah, that's a response, but I guarantee you're not going to get the sovereign of the galaxy bowing to you and apologizing. <laughs> yeah. And more so, other than the apology, it's an actual change in direction, right? Because that's the biggest thing. She's not just placating Lyria here. No. There was an actual like turning, a shifting of her sensibilities toward what Lyria is talking about. It's that, right? It's her ability to key into that. And that's the same thing she did with Kavix, by the way, that makes this character this like superpower, so to speak. Yeah, and she has a superpower. And this is it. This is like her emotionality and the way to people, her way to showcase it and for to her way to equivocate herself with other people of much higher status. I mean, she does it with two golds and then she does it with the gray. And we're talking about Ephraim. And I've been saving this one because I actually, this is like, one of the, like the hammer drops for me and the uh, and her whole POV. I love this. We know that Ephraim is a character that has been basically over and over again since we first met him. He's been attempting to bury his emotions. He almost tra- he tries to commit suicide early in the story because he's just so overwhelmed the loss of his husband Trig. I mean, and I think we all mourn that to some extent because if you read Morningstar and you don't like Trig, then just get out. <laughs> like it's just like it, it's hard not to like that character. That character is awesome. So. Ephraim is using Zolodone, using a drug to kind of basically make his emotions go away. Essentially, he's he's terrible to his friends, terrible to Volga. He's committing heinous acts of crime as a method of escapism. That's what this character is for as a duration of his story until chapter 51. And this is because of Lyria. This is because of what she says and what she does. If you remember the scene there, it's Lyria and Holiday sitting with Ephraim. And this is Ephraim's turning point. Again, chapter 51, and this is Lyria talking to Ephraim. Trig might be gone, yeah. I know you feel robbed, but you got to remember that he saw something to love in you, even if you can't see it. He saw you as a good man, Ephraim. So if you ever loved him, be a good man. And Ephraim's response is internal. He doesn't say this out loud, but he says it internally to the reader. The very next sentence is, I feel everything now. Every bit of emotion, every bit of hurt and pain that not only I believe that he has suffered through, but he has caused others is like, that's like everything is a very inclusive word. I feel like obviously it's a very inclusive word, but in this case, I think it's not just his emotions. It's the emo that gets kind of those outside emotions. It's Volga's emotions. It's Pax and Electra's emotions. It's, it's everything. It's just the whole story crumbling on his head. And it's because of Lyria. It's what she says. She sees where she needs to kind of poke. I don't really like that terminology that much, but just for lack of a better kind of phrase, she sees where she needs to poke and she just goes right for it and says like, be a better man. Yeah. Philip, listeners, (laughs) I am trying to convince you. Like (laughs) once can be an accident. You know, if she just came across Kavix and just happens to be a certain way and it works out for her, fantastic, right? Twice... Uh, it worked with Mustang. Okay, a bit of a fluke, right? No, the reason the third time is being brought up here is because this happens over and over and over again. This is a trend. This is an ability she has. And her approach now to Ephraim is not 
the same, right? She's not tapping into this emotion of honor or this emotion of duty to all colors, right? No, she's tapping into now this element of love and being true to this person, what they stood for and honoring that. And it's this moment that Ephraim becomes the character that so many people love. We've pulled things, we've looked at you know, Reddit, we've done all this stuff and like over and over and over again, you know, Mathar's favorite POV is Ephraim Mm -hmm. and it's for good reason, right? It's a great POV. It's one of the best arcs. It's like this wonderful redemption, but like, where does it start? It starts right in this moment because (laughs) this is the impetus of when Ephraim wants to do away with the Zolodone. No more, no more masking emotion, no more hiding from it. It's like in the middle of literally kidnapping people right? yeah. and, and, and these terrible things. Suddenly it's like, maybe what I'm doing is not right. Maybe I do need to change. Maybe I do need to force this change in myself to confront these emotions. And it's like, what we love about, you know, where we'll go, of course, in Dark Age with this character is like, it starts right here with yeah. who? With Lyria. Yeah. Okay, so it's just so fun to to call this out. Leary is my favorite POV in Iron Gold, and it's not close um, mm. for the reasons we're talking about. Like it's she's so far above that. And I go, I think that that I think that that's a not a popular opinion. I think that Ephraim or Darrow would probably be the top two if I were to poll about a hundred people. I'm guessing one of those two. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. And I think Lyria would be, (laughs) she'd probably be third because I think Lysander would get fourth if we were just, you know. um, (laughs) And we'll talk about Lysander in his episode. But it, what you see in Ephraim, like, I just, I don't want to overstate what you said, but you do see like, what does the character go do right after this? He goes and rescues the kids. Mm -hmm. Does he rescue him so he would get a better amenities when he's in prison? Does he rescue him for personal glory or gain? Does he, what does he do it for? It's like, I think he does it to be a better man, like what Leary said. I don't, you know, there's no way of knowing that for for certain, but I do think that he realizes the destruction that he's caused and he just wants to do it whatever he can to amend it in some way, shape or form. I don't think that he's doing it for any other reason. I think he knows where he's going after on the other side of this. I think he knows he's on a one-way track to deep grave regardless, but I think he doesn't care. I think he just wants to be a better man for whether it's for himself or for Trig or for even Lyria, who he clearly has a very interesting and unique bond with. Like over the course of those chapters where he's his alter ego, Philippe, you see him quivering. You see him giving her that affectionate nickname of rabbit and how that carries on and carries over even into dark age. You see like that, that happens. Like he has an affinity for because she reminds him of Trig. That the, the softness that Leary has, which isn't displayed often, but it's there, reminds her of Trick. And he says as much. It's just a, it's, oh man, she's so cool, dude. <laughs> I know people, people are like rolling their eyes right now, but I really think she's super freaking cool. Yeah. This is one of those things. It's like, we want to bring our love for this book and this idea of like, you know, there's there's certainly kind of a downturn when it comes to iron gold and, and these kind of ideas stack on each other, whether it's this kind of like shaking of multiple POVs or, you know, this idea that like Darrow, who 
for three books now has been the one and only protagonist. And he's been telling you in his own words, because he is the narrator, that he is amazing and great and flawless. <laughs> and he's made you, he's, conf, he's conformed you to like Team in a way, Darrow. In a way, yeah, yes, yeah. And suddenly now you have these three other POVs that are like, hey, we're actually not that okay with exactly how this went. And there's some fallout from some of these decisions and some of these things that have happened. And it's like, maybe I have to confront the Darrow that we spoke about in the last episode. And that can be jarring for people, right? It's all these things on top of each other. And then suddenly you throw in this like Luke Skywalker-esque start to a character, which is off-putting in some cases, right? And we get it. But like the whole idea is we've gone through it multiple times. Every time we read through this book, we see deeper and we and we see more richness in all of the story. And we're just excited to share that. And, and this Lyria POV brings so much of that and unlocks all of these other POVs. And she does so much good. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead. Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back on the other side of that. And I'm going to ask Jeremy a couple questions. I love coffee because of its taste, but also for the caffeine. Sadly, I can't always have great tasting coffee in my pocket or my bag, but I can easily carry around Neuro's energy and focus gum with me wherever I am. This gum has a great peppermint or cinnamon flavor, and it also has 80 milligrams of natural caffeine per serving, giving you that necessary boost of energy wherever you need it. All Neuro mints and gum are vegan, sugar-free, aspartame-free, and gluten-free. And right now, when you order from their website, getneuro.com, you can get 15% off your next order with our promo code, HailReaperPod. Go get some today. You will not regret it. That's getneuro.com, G-E-T-N-E-U-R-O, and use our promo code at checkout to get 15% off your next order. Hail Reaper Pod. Welcome back to Lyria Fan Fest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jeremy, we're going to be talking. I have a couple questions to ask you, and um, I'm, I'm interested in your responses, and I'll give my thoughts as well. But I'm actually, I know you know the, the question I'm about to ask you because this is a conversation you and I had on the phone a few months ago when we were just kind of just starting to think about the ideas for talking about Iron Gold on a podcast. And Lyria came up. Um, the first thing I said was I asked you was like, do you think that Lyria is like kind of a victim of the circumstances in this book? Or do you think that she's actually kind of calling the shots? Do you think she's like the one with the agency? And you actually said, I think she's the one with the agency. And I challenged the thought. I said, you know, actually, I don't. I think that she's kind of kind of rolling the story. She's kind of being dragged along through the story by just the events that are happening. And she's adapting well to them. She's like she's kind of being just pulled into them. And you argued against that. And I want you to kind of share the response and the thoughts you have on the reason why you think that Lyria is actually the kind of the more of the shot caller here within Iron Gold and also has so much more agency than we give her credit for. It's so easy. And I did the same thing on my first read. It's so easy to view her as that victim. She is a low red. She's from the mines. She has nothing to her name. She was in a refugee camp, for goodness sakes, and and hunted by the red hand. Like, you want to stack on top of that? She's a woman, right? You can literally just keep on stacking things of disadvantage over and over. And this is what society sees as like the least 
advantaged person, mm-hmm. right? The person with the least amount of agency possible. So yeah, it's really easy to just tunnel vision onto that and go, yeah, Lyria is a tumbleweed and this force of nature, the wind is just blowing her at its whim, wherever the wind desires. And, and Lyria is just ending up somewhere. I think the danger of that is that it is a two-sided coin. On one hand, sure, you can explain away all the bad things, right? Very easily. But the problem is, is that the good goes along with that. And we've just built this case. And, and that's the exact case that I wanted to build coming into this point is that Lyria does, and you you made a great call. She grabs circumstance by the horns. Every time a major event occurs, whether it's, you know, saving Cavix, whether it's not allowing Xana to pull him away, but literally, like I said, grabs him by like the scruff of his beard and says, no, you're not leaving. In fact, I'm coming with you. Yeah. And my nephew's coming along too. And by the way, he's going to get a proper education <laughs> in the Citadel, right? Yeah. This is sci-fi yeah. <laughs> to, to a red person of this, of this world. And she goes on to do it over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. She approaches a soldier, Ephraim, and changes his life by her demands. She puts herself in front of Mustang and is like, I mean, she doesn't make her, but she positions the situation in which she gives the correct emotional response and brings this element to it where Mustang sincerely apologizes and actually changes course for the better over and over and over again. If you just look past kind of those like what you bring to the story, your your baggage, so to speak, from society, like you can see that this is actually an incredibly powerful protagonist and she just grabs the story and does what she wants with it. Yeah. This is the last thing I want to do today. This is a question I have for you. Um, a pretty big one too, because let me set the scene. I'm, I'm going to ask the question at the end. Just kind of address the other POVs in the book real fast. We've got Darrow kind of on his own journey in this book. Like it's very unlike the prior books where he's kind of on a shared journey. This is kind of, it feels very much like he's a kind of an isolated journey. He's going into all the way to, you know, kill the Ash Lord, but it's kind of his thing. We have Lysander very separated from this greater story in Iron Gold and a character that's obviously a lot of people are not fond of. And then you have Ephraim as a criminal in this book. For the majority of the book, he's a criminal. So the question is, is Lyria the true protagonist of Iron Gold? Wow, you're going to make some enemies. Hey, yo. <laughs> like I said, I, I I think we as a reader can be a bit jarred because Darrow has been and is the protagonist. And yet, like you said, when you position these POVs, it's like, yeah, maybe she can. I mean, again, every good thing, I, I'm not going to reiterate all of them, but like, she is bettering the Solar Republic. She is bettering Ephraim's life, right? It's like everyone she comes into contact with, she leaves better than when she met them. Yeah. And 
if you look at that and sort of this idea of justice and, and these sort of like dream of EO elements that that we've talked about in our last season, it's like who embodies those for the current situation, right? And yeah, you could litigate like Darrow often and doing that too. And we did last week, but like the here and now, it, it really does feel like Lyria is the protagonist of this book. Yeah. And I obviously wouldn't have asked the question unless I thought, you know, the same as you. So I'm not going to bother. You, you give a great answer. And so I, th I think the same thing. And I know that might be considered controversial. And a lot of people could say Darrow. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. I just think that this is what I think. I think that Lyria is the the true protagonist of Iron Gold. Uh, <laughs> she should be on the cover of the book. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, any final thoughts before we close up? Yeah, I mean, after all is said and done, she's actually my least favorite POV. Wow, uh, just okay. To, <laughs> just show you a surprise, she's actually my favorite. Yeah. Um, I, I think that kind of goes without saying. I, I think this case we built is like, I want people, like again, this is our opinion. We don't, claim to have the answers we're not pierce brown by any means right yeah. we're just commentators but like if this isn't the book for you if this isn't the pov for you just ask it like give it another chance read it after you hear our pleas and, and kind of our perspective try to bring that into frame of mind and and approach this book again because i really do think that this is the Aladdin. This is the diamond in the rough. Ooh, good poll. That's a good nerd talk up top or down low. Favorite, wait, hold on, real fast. Nerd talk down low. No, favorite, favorite. This is like lightning round. Yeah, lightning round. Favorite 90s Disney animated film? Um, Lion King. Lion King. Yes. I don't know what mine is. Beauty and the Beast is also Beauty really and the Beast is good. good. Beauty, yeah. Um, I think Aladdin. When did, when I did think Robin Aladdin. Hood happen? That was like That's 70s. 70s yeah, yeah, 70s. That's something like I'm talking 90s. Like not when you were kids. That's before my time. <laughs> yeah, way. Well, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Lion King. Lion King. I'm going Aladdin. Okay, Ooh, that's a good one. That, yeah, they're fun. They're both fun movies. Absolutely. Actually, Lion King's not fun. Never mind. I take that back. It's like one of the most horrific scenes that scarred me Stampede for life. Stampede Scarred me for life. Oh, that's good. Okay. Anyway, right, um, enough nerd talk. <laughs> <laughs> my final thoughts. Uh, is just a quote. Uh, I want to end on this. It's a quote, uh, Kavix is the first speaker and then Leary is the second speaker. The worlds are very big and you are very small. Do you think you are ready, little one? Yes, I say with a trembling voice. Yes, I am. Until next time, hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. The Hail Reaper team is Jeremy, Mathar, Janelle, and myself, Philip. All artwork was done by friend of the podcast, Jeff Halsey. Our theme music, The Gordian Knot, was composed by Jacob Albaum, with production and sound design by Tim Bell. A huge thank you to Pierce Brown for creating the Red Rising saga and fostering our passion for books. And thanks to all you listening, especially our patrons. If you want to learn how to become a Hail Reaper Howler and get additional content, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash hailreaper. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at hailreaperpod, and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others like you discover the show and is much appreciated. Until next time, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper.